0: If you have your Bibles, open up to Zephaniah. We've been doing a short series on this minor prophet, and it is somewhat dark. We've talked about that. Zephaniah starts off in chapter 1 with this total destruction scene, a flood scene. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And he talks about how his people have uh, begun to dabble in other worships, that they are Uh, exercising injustice. The religious leaders are are doing different things. And so he he hones in on their unfaithfulness, and he challenges them to seek the Lord. And he says, perhaps, perhaps you'll be saved. And if you've been here the whole time, we ended last week in chapter 3, verse 8, where God says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And if Zephaniah ended there, it would be a pretty depressing book. But fortunately, God's word is the last word. His word, last word. And so he continues on, and we have a beautiful picture of hope and restoration. But before I get there, I just want to hone in on this phrase a little bit. His word, last word. Um, God is going to have the final say. God's going to have the final say in our life as we stand before him. God is going to have the final say in our nation. God is going to have the final say in our churches. God is going to have the final say. And in conservative churches, most of you would go to churches that say something about God's word is our sole authority. And we believe that. But, you know, Israel would have said that too. They would have said God's word is our authority. But they wandered off into other things. Um, And we fight about things that aren't really... uh, mentioned here. There are preferences or whatever, as Rich said. And so we have this, this belief, uh, but we don't always have the practice. His word, last word. When I was growing up, uh, my uh, college, uh, my best friend came. We, we lived together for a little bit, and uh, we had read a book uh, about Dawson Troutman. It was a biography about Dawson Troutman. For those of you who don't know, he founded The Navigator's and he was a great evangelist, great disciple maker, and uh, really just on fire for Jesus. And, uh, and he had a mantra that he lived by, his word, last word. And he, and he was committed to ending each day with scripture. And so we had read that we were really challenged by it, and, and uh, we shared a really small bedroom. And, and so we took on this, his word, last word. And it just worked simply, you know, we would be laying in bed and, and uh, uh, we would be talking about all the, you know, things that, uh, you know, guys were into, right? You know, our work and, you know, school and, okay, girls and, you know, the girls we were dating are more likely the girls we wanted to date, right? And so the conversation would go the different directions. And then each other, every other night, one of us would say HWLW, his word, last word. And that person had to quote a verse of scripture. And that's what we ended on. And uh, it was really, you know, we are Christian kids, grew up in the church, and so for the first week and a half, it was pretty easy. But after that, you know, we kind of ran out of verses we knew. So we had to come up with new ones. But it's really good, just end of the day. His word, last word. So when we think of all the darkness of Zephaniah, we're going to end with God's statement here. And we've been challenging you, know, I've been challenging you to live with the end in mind. So let's read about the end. Verse 9, chapter 3. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you a renowned, and I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now that is a wonderful passage. And in here we see, in his word, last word, we see a saved people, we see a worshiping people, and we see a changed people. First of all, we see this saved people. The remnant of Judah and the nations are portrayed as a saved people. And we get that just from one simple word. Obviously, there's a very different tone and explanation of what Israel will look at. But we have this utter destruction in verse 8. And then in verse 9, there's a change. For I'm about to do something different. I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a change. And so when we look at this contrast, a people that's utterly swept away and a people that is enjoying, what, what is the description here of the new heavens and the new earth? Let me just, just state that. Because we have God living in the midst of his people. It's definitely an end of Revelation picture here. And so when we have this glorious state, I think it is wise for us to pause for a moment. And the question that should be in each of our hearts is which group am I in? Where do I fall in group A or group B? Because they both exist. So in this, here's some questions that you might ask yourself. First of all, have I called on the name of the Lord? He says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. Notice when we call on the name of the Lord, there's a change that takes place in our speech. And we can look back at this in in all through Zephaniah, but in chapter 3, verse 4, it says, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men, her priests profane what is holy. Now, now they're gonna have a, a pure speech. There's a change in their allegiance. They've called on the name of the Lord. In chapter one, verse five, we saw those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom. Here's a group of people that say, Yeah, we've called on the name of the Lord, and we're also worshiping these other gods over here. That won't happen in the time to come. So we check our allegiance. And our attitude. I love verse 9. I mean, we could just camp out on this all day, but there's a change of speech. They're calling on the name of the Lord, and notice we're talking about the future. We're talking about heaven, and what are they doing? They're serving God. Now, just, just because I don't know where it's come from, but somehow we picture heaven as some sort of spirit state, where we have wings like angels. We're usually standing knee-deep in some puffy cloud. Some of the pictures have us in an adult diaper. And it's just kind of, we're just floating around. But if we go back to Genesis, God created his people to flourish and to grow and to serve and to worship, to live in relationship with him and What we have in the new heavens and the new earth is not something that we haven't seen, but what God intended all along. And so they're serving there in this new kingdom. Now, look, I recognize, I'm I'm preaching to the the choir. It's in front of me here. For those of you who don't know, it was just kind of an old saying, right? The choir used to always stand behind the the pastor as if to, to say, you know, we agree with everything he said. And, you know, you couldn't fall asleep because everybody could see you. And so, you know, ultimately we agree. We go, yeah, you know, I've, I've called on the name of the Lord. But so often we just view that as some sort of one-time past event, right? We need to call on the name of the Lord. But are we seeking his refuge? Are we following him? R- remember, Jesus said even... Uh, Paul said, even the demons believe, right? Like, are we calling on the name of the Lord? Are we leaning into him? Are we trusting him? Am I a worshiper? Verse 10, for beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, that's how they're des- described. Now, again, this picture of heaven where everybody's in the choir, I've shared this before. I know many of you want to be in the choir, okay? I, I don't want to be. You know, in the, that, just, that doesn't excite me to be in the heavenly golf team. No, I, I, you know, whatever, it's something else. Worship God differently. So we've, we've talked about worship as an active response to God, whereby we declare his worth in our heart, in our actions, in our attitudes. And so these worshipers, they're coming to, to give, to serve, uh, to sacrifice. But notice the, the personal aspect of of what God is saying here. God is speaking. For beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed one, shall bring what? My, do you see the personal relationship there? So many times we want church or we want heaven without Jesus. I'm just gonna say it's all about Jesus. It's all about being with him and worshiping him. Third, a question we might ask ourselves, has God conquered my pride and left me meek and humble? That's a hard one. I mean, obviously, it's a work that God does. That's how it happens. He says, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds. Isn't that beautiful? And I will remove from your midst the proudly exalted ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a humble and lowly. There's two things that are happening here. There's one, a removal. Some people's hearts are so haughty, God is going to remove them. In some hearts, God is changing. And so I want a heart, right? That wants to be humbled by God. Am I living a holy life? They'll do no injustice. They'll speak no lies. Again, it's a work that God's doing, but it's a work that I'm involved in. And am I living in peace? Boy, the end of verse 13. Um, You know, he's using shepherd language here, okay? So it sounds a little weird. For they shall graze and lie down. Uh, Grace sounds kind of like what you do on Thanksgiving, right? You have a big meal, and then you just keep grazing until you pass out. But the picture here is that you're at peace. You're safe. You have nothing to worry about. There was a argument, theological argument that took place uh, over heaven and hell and in some books that were written, and And one person was arguing for a universal salvation. Everybody gets saved, which we do not believe. I do not believe. I'm not teaching that. But their argument was, notice in Revelation, the gates of heaven are open. I was saying to my students this this week, I'm like, what are the gates for? Security. Like, why do you lock your doors? What does it mean that we may not lock our doors in heaven? We won't lock our doors in heaven. We're not afraid of anybody coming in. It's a picture of safety, of of being secure that God is painting for us. So we have a saved people. And I want to be clear. Look, you're not saved by your works or your actions. We are saved because of our faith in Jesus Christ alone. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, we're making him the king of our life. We are following him. We are bowing our knee in every way to him. If we confess Jesus, Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the cross is central. The only way into God's kingdom is because you believe that Jesus took your place and atoned for your sins. And you put your faith in that and that alone. No other gods. No other securities. And so we're saved by the blood of Jesus. But we're not just saved to sit and do nothing. We're set to be a part of his kingdom, his way. And so here, we, we, we need to ask these questions of where our heart is. We have a saved people. Second, we have a, a worshiping people in verse 14. The call is for these people to sing aloud, to shout, to rejoice, to exult with all your heart. And what, what are they worshiping over? Listen to verse 15, and just just put yourself in here. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. We will rejoice over what God has done. We were people of shame, of sin separated from God and because God loved us so much and Jesus died for us, he removes that shame and that judgment. Rejoice. I don't know what else you would want to rejoice over. It's been removed. One of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture is this idea of our shame, Zephaniah mentions it, being removed. And that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, they cover themselves and they hide from God because they feel shame for the first time. In the created world, they felt guilt. They felt dirty. They felt shame. Could you imagine what it would be like maybe to go through a day, a week, you didn't feel any guilt. You didn't feel any shame. You didn't wonder what somebody else was thinking about you or saying about you. You were at complete peace with who you were created to be and who you were before God, your creator. Man, it is a beautiful picture. And it's one that causes the participants in the new earth and the new heaven to rejoice. Even to shout. I'm assuming even some of the Baptists might give a whoop. I don't know. It's a celebration. Now, you know, we're in a March Madness. I'm not much of a basketball guy or if you're a football person or if you're a soccer, whatever it is that you enjoy. Man, it, I've had the opportunity sometimes to, to be when, when my team is playing. I was a big Boise State fan. I got to be at the Fiesta Bowl where they did one of the trick plays at the very end and won the game. And the guy who did it runs over and bows his knee before his girlfriend and asks her, I'm like, you're like, yeah, woo, you're just going crazy. What's a touchdown. I don't even know those people. But one day we'll celebrate that the God who created you removed all the reproach and judgment and shame, and it's more than a touchdown. It's worth shouting over. So we become these great worshipers. We worship over what God has done One person, I was just reading a book just last night. I had to take a picture of the page and send it to myself for this morning. And he wrote this, all Old Testament images of salvation of God's people involve the reestablishment of the intended relationship between God, mankind, and the rest of creation. All these Old Testament images are really just a reestablishment of what God intended. The second thing we'll rejoice over is where God is. I know it sounds kind of funny saying that, but it says the King of Israel, verse fifteen, second stanza, and the proper name of God there, Yahweh is in your midst. The only re- the way that God could be in our midst is that our judgments has been removed. But the whole point of it is that God is. We're in the presence of God. Man, that's incredible. Now. It even gets better. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. I think there's a song about that. He will rejoice. Listen, this is God. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Depends on the translation here. He will quiet you by his love or he will be quiet. In his love. But he's rejoicing here, so we've gone with this one. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God is singing worship songs over you. Have you seen that one in the Bible before? God is singing over you. God will rejoice over what he's done you know, all that he is doing here is for his glory. And he's rejoicing that all the promises he made for his people have been redeemed. They've been fulfilled. And when we look at Zephaniah, there seems to be this sharp contrast to the judgment passages we've looked at. But God's justice shows his passion to rescue his world from human evil and violence so that, he can create a loving world where everyone can flourish in safety and peace. That's, that's what we're here. God's justice is so that his people can enjoy creation. Now I have to say, I have a theological mindset. I, just, I always want to lean into God's sovereignty, God's glory. And so I have a picture here of God singing over me. And I'm a little uncomfortable with it, if I'm honest. Why is God worshiping over me? I didn't even think about it that long when I was writing the sermon, I gotta be honest with you. I just said, oh, it's for God's glory. It's God's glory. He's rejoicing over what he's done. He took pitiful Dave, and he turned him into something. And God's going, Woohoo! look what I did. Do you know why God's singing over us? Because he loves us. God is singing over you because he loves you. Because he created you to be in relationship with him. Because through Christ, all of that has been accomplished. And yes, he did it. And yes, God be glorified. But he is singing over you as a husband sings over his bride. He is in absolute love with you. This is a glorious passage that my heart just wants to step over because I can't come to grips with the fact that God would love me that much. But he does. We see a saved people, a worshiping people, and all this is in this light of a changed people. There's an amazing thing that's happening here at the end of Zephaniah, and what we see is a repeating of God saying, I will. In fact, he says it several times uh, here at the end and in another place uh, in chapter three. And so there's seven I wills. Here's what God is gonna do in bringing about change in your life. And I'm thankful that God is doing it because We're not accomplishing this on our own. But remember that Jesus has saved us and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been uh, justified and we are being sanctified. So these are works that we want to be involved in. And ultimately, we will be glorified and God will say, I have done it. And here's what he's going to do in you and in me. First of all, he will gather. It says in verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. It sounds a little odd, Uh, But what we have is there's different things that Israel was supposed to be involved in, festivals and celebrations and sacrifices. And many of them Israel was still doing, some that they have forgotten to do. Uh, Remember, Josiah is the king here. Uh, He was one of the great reformers. And one of the things that they found, this is always amazing to me, it happened more than once in Chronicles, where uh, they're cleaning up the temple. They're doing a spring cleaning, right? And, you know, it's like our church. It's been around for a long time. There's, there's things hidden in crevices. And so they're cleaning up the temple, and they, they're like, hey, king, we found the book of Deuteronomy. Where had that been hidden? And they don't quite say it that way, but they found some lost laws of the Lord. It seems like it's from Deuteronomy. How have they been going without Deuteronomy? And uh, it says apparently they read it, and... Uh, they go, hey, we're supposed to be celebrating Passover. Well, where does that get lost? It's kind of a big one. It's like one of the major themes of the Old Testament. And Josiah, being a just brilliant king, he's like, we should do that. <laughs> Let's have one of those. And so they have Passover, so there's these festivals. And what we find is some people are like, I can't believe we haven't been having Passover. And some people are like, "When is Passover over? When does this Passover?" And if you've been to one of those, we've done them here a few times. One of those, uh, you know, Passover meals, you know, the Seder meals. Yeah, the food isn't that great. It's not, it's not wonderful. I mean, you eat the applesauce and you're like, uh, you're, you're, you know, kind of elbowing somebody, saying, "We're stopping at KFC on the way home, right?" I mean, it's just not that great. And so there was people there that weren't getting it. And God says, you know what? One day you're going to attend these celebrations, and everybody's going to love it. There's not going to be any whiners there. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festivals so that you will no longer suffer a reproach. What, What is it like when you're into worshiping God, when you're into loving God, and other people aren't? So first of all, I will gather. And then second, I will save. Behold, at that time I will deal. Oh, excuse me, I forgot, I will deal. (laughs) That's kind of a weird weird word, right? I will deal. It's it's there, I'm just sticking with the text here. I will deal. Um, And there's different ways, right? Some of you, not Baptist, but some of you played cards and it's somebody's turn to deal and I, I don't wanna explain that one to you. But when your mom or dad says to you, I'll deal with you later. That has a different connotation, doesn't it? That's the connotation here. I'll deal with it. It's time to deal with this. Enough is enough. And you know, depending on what side you're on, uh, you have a different feeling. Notice he will say, he says here, Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors. That's wonderful. Read 2 Thessalonians, it's kind of the same thing. You're, you're going through all the struggle. Don't worry, God, I'm gonna take care of this. Then I will save. I'm gonna deal with it and I will save. Notice the lame and gather the outcast. What a what a weird thing to say in there. But what is he saying? Not only am I, I'm just like, I'm not gonna save the, the best of the I'm gonna save those who've been struggling, suffering, the outcast, people who've been left out. Man, that's a beautiful picture. I will save the lame and the outcast. And then I will change. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. When you take somebody who was the outcast, not included in the group, not allowed to go to temple, left out completely, suffering, poor, And all of a sudden, you raise them up to be the one that everyone is renowned. They're praised. They're the movie star. That's a a pretty big change. And it's actually a common theme in Scripture. Uh, We see it so many different places. um, And it's a a repeated um, um, refrain. And we have it in uh, one of the places that I love to look at it is in Psalm, I'll oh, see if I can find it real quick, uh, 113. And he says in there, in verse seven, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her joyous mother of children. And this, this parts of Psalm 113, uh, they're repeated in, in uh, Hannah's song. They're repeated uh, in Mary's song. Uh, They're they're in, in the same idea here as in Zephaniah, that those who are on the bottom are being lifted up. Verse 19, three of the I wills are in here. Behold, at the time I will deal with your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. This is the idea of being being brought in to being gathered a part of, in a positive way uh, of God's uh, people. Uh, uh, one translation, I like this one, I will bring you back. Okay, I'm bringing, I'm bringing you home is the picture here. And the, I, I, we wrestle with this, but it, here it is in scripture. And at that time when I gather you, I will make you renowned and praised among the people of the earth. He says when I restore your fortunes, I'm, I'm giving this back. How does he do this? There's one other, I will, in chapter 3, and it comes in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame, because your deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst. It's that change that takes place. Removing evil and renewing our heart. That's how all these things can happen. And friends, I want to say that the only way that those happen is if you bow your knee to Jesus Christ and follow him. You're not going to accomplish it on your own. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to buy it. It only comes by humbling ourselves and acknowledging our sin, repenting and receiving the love of Jesus. Some application and action. What we've been saying as we go through the book of Zephaniah is that we need to live with the end in mind. Now, not only do we live with the idea that we'll all stand before God and give an account and that God is going to judge the nations and that we're only saved through Jesus Christ, but we live with this picture of what God's kingdom looks like. Think about this. Jesus, how do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be lifted up. Amen? Your kingdom come. This is the kingdom we're talking about. And yeah, who doesn't want it to come? It's beautiful. I want to be a part of it. If you want to be a part of it, and that's what you're waiting for, then I think part of your prayer at least should be May I learn to live according to your kingdom today. May I live with your kingdom principles today. May my heart be humbled. May my speech be changed. May I be a worshiper of you. Your kingdom come. Come now. But even come in my heart, Lord. So we live with that end in mind. Now, again, we've been saying it here, look, God didn't just save you so that you can do whatever you want. He saved you so that you might serve. And we have that again in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, amen, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, amen, and serve me with one accord, not in an accord, okay? Is it a reference to a Honda commercial? It means that we're working together with one heart. And I would just, as we end Zeph and I here, I would invite you just to rejoice in the changes that God is going to make. And rejoice even in the changes that God is making. You know, we don't like change, but God is changing us, I hope. Molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus and that hurts. It hurts. Rich and I were having a little banter back and forth right before the service. I uh, I was touched by our reading today um, from John chapter 11. Rich said he was going to steal it and then he didn't. He chickened out. And um, I didn't plan on, on referencing it but it is really what we're in, in the midst of in this life. And uh, if I can find the book of John all of a sudden. Oh, I'm going on the wrong, going the wrong direction. It's hard to talk and turn pages at the same time. But we were re- reading the story this morning. If you're doing the church, church reading, um, I, think, I think this is in the church reading. Um, John chapter 11, uh, the death of Lazarus. And uh, we know how that ends. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But it says as he hears this news. In chapter 11, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay? Stop there for a minute. Yes, Jesus loves all the children. Okay? Yes. He's just making a statement here. He loves them. He's been in a relationship with them. He spent time with them. He loves them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he got up and immediately went to the... It's not what the text says. It says, When he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Hey, Jesus, it's not how I want you to lovingly respond. I want you to get up and go take care of Lazarus. But sometimes God allows us to go through pain so that we might experience the full glory of God. Man, we are living in tribulation. We are living in difficult times. The hearts of many have grown cold. People are increasingly hating followers of Jesus. So come, Lord, come. But Jesus loves us so much that he's going to wait until you and I experience the full glory of his redeeming plan through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in that. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to uh, kind of go through this book that's difficult and, and think about what the end will look like. And Lord, it's more than we can think or imagine. And we thank you that you give that to us. Those who have bowed their knees and declared Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Those who look to the cross. God, we rejoice in that. But in the midst of the difficult times today, God, I pray that you would make us into the people that you want us to be. That we would bow our knee to you today. Declare you Lord and serve you with our whole heart. I pray that we would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.